something that comes from an article by Dr. Joel Humans entitled 35,000 Decisions. He says that various internet sources estimate that an adult makes 35,000 remotely conscious decisions every day. In contrast, he says a child makes about 3,000. He cites some research. It sounds like an incredible amount of decisions, 35,000. He says this number may sound absurd, but in fact we make 226.7 decisions each day on just food alone, according to researchers at Cornell University. I guess so, if you consider everything you decide not to have. I don't know. I, I... As your level of responsibility increases, he says, I, I'm assuming he means as you grow, as you grow from a child who makes 3,000 to an adult who makes 35,000 a day. As your level of responsibility increases, so does the smorgasbord of choices you are faced with. He says, you and I have been given a free will and a multitude of choices in life. He goes on to list some of those choices. What we eat, what we wear, what we buy, what we believe, what we do, how we vote, how we spend our time, who we marry, how many children to have, what to name them, on and on and on and on it goes. He observes quite rightly that each choice we make carries certain consequences, good and bad. But he does observe this, and this is a wonderful thought to entertain. He says the ability to choose is an incredible and exciting power that we have each been entrusted with by our Creator, and for which we have an obligation to be good stewards. Well, amen, that's true. That is very true. In fact, if God had not given us the power to make decisions, what would be the purpose of him telling us anything in the Bible? Why, why give us a command or instruct us in how to live if we could not make our own decisions? John C. Maxwell says that life is a matter of choices and every choice you make makes you. Very true. But last week, in the first 16 verses, chapter 26, we studied together and spent some time on this concept of God's sovereignty. And we made the statement, made the observation that God brings about everything that happens. God is God. And if God truly is in control of all things, then how is it that he can give us choices? If he determines what it is that happens, then why would our choices matter? We, as human beings, look at this through human logic. And we say to ourselves, well, 
if God is a sovereign God and everything that happens he ordains, brings about, allows, then surely our choices don't matter. Or some look at it from the other perspective. They say, well, our choices certainly do matter and we, we've been given a lot of choices and, and therefore God doesn't know what's going to happen. You just, you know, whatever happens, happens. Logically, our minds cannot reconcile the two. In fact, I would dare to say that no mind of man has ever been able to reconcile those two truths. Not even the deepest of theological experts in their thinking, it it cannot be reconciled. Human logic can't not do it. But Isaiah says something that we need to remember at this point. Chapter 55, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, speaking of the Lord, speaking the Lord's words to us, says, "My For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, human logic cannot reconcile the two. But then again, we are only human. It's not a problem for God. Years ago, I read an explanation by, I think it was J.I. Packer, who observed that God's sovereignty and man's free will could be illustrated this way. Think of a railroad track, two rails running perfectly parallel to one another, off into the distance till it disappears. One rail is God's sovereignty, one rail is man's free will. They never intersect as far as we can see. And nor will they intersect this side of eternity, but on the other side of eternity, they will. We waste our time and we cause ourselves great consternation and worry when we try to fully allow for both. Yet both are true and both are stated as fact in the Scripture. If God's thoughts were not greater than my thoughts, I would not need Him. If God's thoughts were not greater than my thoughts, He would not be God. But God is greater than us, unfathomable to us, and all that He does is impossible for us to understand. Though one day we will know. But until then, it's enough to believe what he says. This is what the unbelieving mind that rejects Christ cannot ever comprehend. That we can believe what he says when we cannot 
fully understand it. But the Spirit of God has enlightened our minds and changed our hearts and made us into a new creation, made us spiritual creatures that can indeed believe what he says and trust what he says and understand that we don't have to explain it all to ourselves or anybody else. What God says is the deciding factor, not man's logic, not my logic, not your logic. God is sovereign. Nothing does happen by chance, and at the same time, our choices always matter. Now, last week, we looked at it from the perspective of God's sovereignty. This week, we're going to talk about our choices, beginning at verse 17. And what we are going to see, and what I want to emphasize to you this morning, looking at verses 17 to 30, is that our choices do matter. If they didn't matter, why would he have given us those choices? And as we look at verses 17 to 30, I want you to observe with me why. Yes, why they matter. Because it's very clear in these verses. Last week we looked at Wednesday of Passion Week. We move on to Thursday of Passion Week now as we come to verse 17. In verse 17 it says, Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying unto him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now the Passover was celebrated on Thursday of Passion Week by those in Galilee and in the south and among the priesthood and the nobles and around Jerusalem that it was Friday for them and that was because of the, they had different times in which they calculated the day. In the north it was from sunrise to sunrise, in the south it was from sunset to sunset. So what they ended up doing is Letting people have a choice on what day, depending on where they were from. And, and Jesus and grew up in the north, and his disciples were from the north. And This was the day of Passover for them. And so they were rightly, the disciples were rightly concerned about it, because uh, they'd been staying with probably Lazarus, Mary and Martha, and Bethany, a couple miles away, out of town. Well, now Passover is here, and... They needed to observe the Passover. It was commanded in the Old Testament for all Jewish people. When Moses led the people out of of Egypt so many years ago, on the night before they left, the Passover was celebrated. They they killed a lamb, they, they ate the lamb, they put the blood over the doorpost, the death angel passed over the Jewish homes on that last plague that fell on Egypt. They didn't have a choice. It was in God's word. They were still living under the law. In fact, Jesus, in order to be perfect and sinless, which he was and always will be, because he was a human being born Jewish, was obligated to celebrate the Passover. So the first reason why our choices matter, in this case, their choice 
as the disciples obviously discerned, was to do what God told them to do. So our choices matter because it is our choices that allow us to align our will with God's will. We have the choice whether or not to obey. And when we obey, we align our choices with God's revealed will. His will is revealed in his word. Going way back to the law, the book of Exodus, following. His will is about us submitting to his authority, and that's what this was all about. Even the disciples recognized Jesus' authority over, over them, said, well, you know, what are we going to do? You're in charge. Now, understanding that God's will is very much revealed, yet there's much of what we should do that he doesn't reveal specifically in his word. He leaves to us to decide. And it is those decisions that we make in faith, trusting that he will lead us, guide us, give us wisdom to keep us in the center of his will, which we are approaching from the standpoint of making decisions on the basis of faith. And we do that understanding that he is indeed sovereign, even over the very moments that tick off on the clock. Look again with me in verse 18. And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now there are two words in the Greek language translated time. One is the word from which we get the word chronology, the passage of time, calendar time. That's not the one used here. The other Greek word is a word which means a point in time, a particular time, a precise time, a moment in time, a second in time. And that's the word he uses here. My time has come. God is sovereign over what happens to us and what we encounter and all that entails our life moment by moment, second by second. So many times we think we have been delayed when we have only been directed sovereignly into the perfect moment. Sometimes we feel we have been rushed, pushed, or we're late somehow. But God is in control. He was going to die at the precise moment the Father had determined. And He was going to Observe the Passover, the last one with his disciples, right when he should. Nothing was going to stop that or change that. Even though Judas had already made that deal with the chief priests and elders to betray him and to kill him. And that leads us to the next thing we notice here. 
Verse 18, he says, go into the city to a certain man. But he doesn't say what man. He doesn't give them a name. Just go to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says. Well, we need to go to the Gospel of Mark for all the details. Now, all the Gospels are inspired. They are all true and they do not conflict with each other. But some have information, others do not. Some has more, some has less here and vice versa. Mark chapter 14, at verse 13, we read this. And he sent out two of his disciples. We learn from Luke, another verse we're not putting up here, that those two were were Peter and John. So he sent out Peter and John and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. So what... Matthew's describes here as you'll go and there'll be a certain man you'll meet. Actually, that's just how Matthew describes it. He doesn't put all the details in, but we know from Mark that he actually told them that they would identify this man because he would be carrying a pitcher of water. But what man? There could have been two million people in town for the feast. Where would they look for him? What part of the city? What street? That God would take care of as a sovereign God. But they would know who he was because he'd be carrying a pitcher of water. You say, well, wouldn't a lot of people be carrying pitchers of water? No, because in that culture, the women obtained, retrieved the water, brought it from the well. This was a man, unusual, an unusual sign. Now, going to verse 14, Mark says, Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then verse 15, then he will show you a large upper furnished and prepared there make ready for us. So, the man carrying the pitcher of water was obviously a servant or maybe some other member of the household. For whatever reason was retrieving the water, that was his sign they would follow him. He would go to the right house where Jesus had already made arrangements with the master of that house to provide a large room on the upper level well furnished. So not only is God in charge of the timing of all things, he is intimately involved in the details and the circumstances of life as well. What the disciples looked at and said, what are we going to do? Jesus said, it's already done. You just don't know about it. We need to realize that God's timing is perfect. We need to acknowledge that he's involved in every circumstance of our life. Everything we encounter. And that those things are divinely orchestrated. But why? This is unusual. Why? Why would he go through this process? Well, all you have to do is just back up the first part of chapter 26. Judas had already made that deal to betray Jesus, to see that he was arrested and killed. But Jesus could not let Judas know where they were going to observe the Passover meal. 
It would have been a perfect opportunity for, Jesus, for Judas to make good on his plot that Jesus already knew about and told the other disciples about here, or we'll tell them in a moment. So this was a way he could tell Peter and John to go and make the preparations, find the place without really telling them where the place was in front of the other disciples, including Judas. See, God is sovereign even to the point of allowing for the evil there is in this world and the bad things that happen in this world and the, the, the people like Judas and all that they plan and the things they do and the havoc that they wreak on people, he, he, he still accounts for all of that and still he is sovereign and they don't change anything with all their plots. And, and we noticed that last week too. So this was about making sure they did what they should do on the Passover. And it was important to Jesus that he celebrate this last Passover with his disciples because he had much more to say to them before his crucifixion on the next day. And that is, by the way, what we call the Olivet Discourse. I'm sorry, not the Olivet Discourse. I said that wrong. It's the Upper Room Discourse. That's in John chapter 14 through chapter 17. It's not included in Matthew. John includes it. So he had a lot to say to them, a lot of comforting things, a lot of things they would need to know and understand going forward that had to do with his resurrection and everything beyond. So God's sovereignty is, is woven through all of this. And yet we see that Peter and John had a choice to make. They could have said, hey, Peter, this is crazy. How are you going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water in Jerusalem? Let's just go rent a room and let's just take care of this and, and we'll do it our way. And they could have said that even before they left. Maybe one of them even knew a place and they might have let it out. Judas could have found out. They could have, they could have went their own way, but they had a responsibility and their choice mattered. It was important that they be aligned with the will of God. But there's another reason we need to see also here. Another reason why our choices matter. It's important that we stay in the will of God, align our, our life and our choices with the will of God. And we're going to see why, or at least touch on it a little later. But it's also important to understand that our choices affect our future. You say, well, if God's sovereign, he's sovereign over, sovereign over the moment in time we are in and also over the future. That's true. But yet our choices affect our future. Let me illustrate. Verse 20. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. This is in the upper room now. They're ready to observe the Passover meal. And as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, the word betray actually means to deliver over to the authorities. I mean, it was a word they used of delivering a prisoner over to the prison keeper or to the one who would uh, exact some matter of punishment. 
He turned Jesus over to the enemy, basically. Surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? Such an interesting question. But we can understand it, can't we? We don't know what we're going to do tomorrow. If someone were to say to you, tomorrow you're going to commit this sin or make this mistake or whatever. Well, truth of the matter is, we might. We could. We're sinful by nature. We're prone to do the wrong thing. So each of them began to say, is it I? I surely hope it's not me. He answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now, that sounds like it could have been any of them because they all were doing that. But it seems from the Gospel of John that he said this at the moment Judas was dipping the unleavened bread into the, the bitter herbs, that part of the Passover meal. And that he may have said it lowly or under his breath. John, who's seated closest to him, heard it. Not all of them fully understood it. But after he identifies who it is, at least to John, verse 24 tells us what he said next. The Son of Man indeed goes, and he's saying this openly to all of them, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So he's saying that Judas here, the betrayer, was going to suffer eternal punishment. Judas, by his choice, determined his future. You say, well, you know, even the the betrayal is, is prophesied even in the Old Testament was going to happen. Yes, that's true. God allowed it to happen. and God was sovereign in that sense. But Judas is still responsible for choosing to betray him, and he determined Judas's future in that sense. Verse 25, then Judas, who was betraying him, or in the process of betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Now, he knew it was he. But if he didn't ask the question like the rest of them, he would <laughs> have been pretty obvious, wouldn't it? So he has to ask, and he does. Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Which is basically this. Jesus said, yeah, it's you. Of course, after that, he told Judas to go and do what he had to do quickly, and Judas left. And some of them thought, well, he was going to buy something or something they lacked at the meal. Didn't understand it. He was excused at this point. His fate was settled. But why did Jesus even give him this warning? Why did he say this? Better for, better for this man than not even be born. In spite of the fact that Jesus knew what his decision would be, God in his grace and in his mercy it was saying one last time to Judas, Judas, you're forewarned. You see, anybody that suffers eternal punishment is doing so by their own choice, in a sense. 
No one, no one eventually can lift up their eyes in hell and say, God, you're unjust because I didn't know. They won't be able to say that. There'll be no excuse. David wrote, Psalm 19, said all you got to do is just, just walk outside at night and look up in the sky and you know there's a God you've got to answer to. The heavens declare His glory. For others, they hear the gospel message and reject it. Choices determine future. But let's flip the thing over. Look at the other side of things now. At verse 26, and as they were eating, now they were eating the Passover meal. And after an initial cup that they shared, you can call it wine, but it was mixed with water. Or it was just grape juice, one or the other, but it wasn't intoxicating. And it was specified how this was to be done. It was, they needed to be completely sober to celebrate this. There was an initial cup, and, and then there was a ceremonial washing of hands, followed by the meal itself, the consuming of the Passover lamb. And then there was the eating of the bitter herbs. They took unleavened bread, which they were instructed to take with them when they left Egypt. And dip it in the bitter herbs, which was symbolic of the bitter bondage in Egypt. And then there was a second cup, and then finally the singing of uh, what's called the Hallel, some portion of Psalms 113 to 118, and the Passover meal would be over. So it says, and as they were eating, or before the meal was concluded, Jesus institutes a new observance. And Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take ye, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper, we call it. We observe it four times a year here at Fellowship Baptist Church. Some churches do it more often or less often. It is a memorial meal. We call it an ordinance. An ordinance is simply a, another way of saying a command. But it's supposed to be a part of our worship in the church. Not every Sunday, although some churches do. It's not, again, it's not specified. It says as often as you do it. Whenever you're, our, our thinking in Baptist circles and independent circles pretty much, I think, follow the line of we don't want to do it too often so that it becomes, you know, something we just do by, without thinking, but often enough to make sure that we always remember. It's symbolic. He says, take, eat, this is my body. Take, eat, this is, drink, this is my blood. He didn't mean it literally, obviously. It's a symbolic representation. Designed to memorialize what he was about to do, which was to go to the cross of Calvary and shed his blood for us. That we might have 
the remission of sins, which means the forgiveness of sins. Now, whereas the Passover meal, which was celebrated legitimately up to this point, the Passover meal looked forward to the cross. You have the symbolism of the lamb and the blood on the doorpost and all that. The Passover meal pointed the Jewish people to the Messiah, the sacrifice for sin. The Passover looked forward to the cross. There at the day before the cross, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper going forward because the Lord's Supper would look back on the cross from our perspective. A memorial, this do in remembrance of me. We are always to remember, we are always to keep at the forefront of our mind the great sacrifice that Christ made as payment for our sins that enabled us to have eternal life through faith in Him. But the, pa- the, the, the Lord's Supper, it, unlike the Passover meal, not only looked in one direction, it looked in two directions. The Lord's Supper looks back on the cross where our sins were redeemed, but it also looks forward to the eternal fellowship we will have with the resurrected Lord, which is the results of the cross and the redemption. That's why he says what he says there about the kingdom. And so when we understand that, we understand that Choosing to believe in Jesus Christ and accept Him as Savior, be a part of the body of Christ, the church, and to be a part of the communion, the sharing of the, the Lord's Supper or the, the meal which we partake of here that He instituted, not only looks back on what happened, but it points us to where we are going and what we're going to experience. So when a person chooses to believe in Jesus Christ, and accept Him, they are determining their future on the positive side. Eternal blessing versus like Judas who went the other way. Looking at verse 27, Matthew 26, 27, it says, Then He took the cup and gave thanks. Now, in the original, in the Greek, that phrase, give thanks, if you transliterate or take the, the Greek letters and put it over into English, you come up with what's called the Eucharist. Have you ever heard the Lord's Supper called the Eucharist? The Thanksgiving meal. I don't think it's the most accurate or best way to describe it. Yes, it, he gave thanks before he said, this is my body and this is my blood. And we're thankful for that. But it, it is more than just that. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, and this is the new King James, it says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? The old King James translation, I think if you got one that's with you today, look at that, it says the communion in the blood of Christ. It means the sharing. So some people call the Lord's Supper the communion because we are sharing in the benefits of His blood and of the, who He was that died for us. But sometimes we'll say things like the Eucharist or the communion. We don't know what we're talking about. It's just words. That's why I like to just simply say, call it the Lord's Supper. And then you have to explain the meaning. The bread 
His body, who he was. He was a God-man. We hear, we hear this every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Not half God, not part God, half man, no. Completely and fully God, divine, and yet at the same time, he took upon himself human flesh. He is the God-man, the God-man. The absolutely unique Savior. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. His only begotten Son. That word begotten means unique. None like him. The only possible Savior for man. And so, the disciples, by their choices, the other eleven, look forward to eternal fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This anticipates and incorporates the fact that he would come out of that tomb on Sunday morning, which he did. And so, it's all bound up in this memorial, the Lord's Supper that he instituted. Each and every person in the world that's ever lived has this choice to make. This momentous choice. Will I accept Christ or reject him? Will I endure eternal suffering or eternal blessing? That's a pretty important decision. Most important decision, I suppose, you could possibly even conceive of. When you think about the ramifications of it. But even if you already know the Lord and your eternal destiny is settled and that's great and wonderful, still our everyday choices still affect it because there is this matter of rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What we call the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where we will be judged as far as our life, our works as a Christian is concerned. Not our, no, we won't be judged in, in the sense that we'll be somehow uh, condemned because our sins have been paid for. That's been settled. We're saved, but there will be rewards for those that are faithful and those that are obedient. I often use the illustration of a graduation ceremony. All of the graduates walk across the stage and get their diploma. All Christians who believe in Jesus Christ and are saved, they gain entrance into heaven, eternal blessing. But in a graduation ceremony, only a few selected students get the special honors. It may be stamped on their diploma. Uh, it may be indicated by a special... I don't know what you call it, uh, thing they put around their neck, uh, sash or something. It may be, there's, there's some that graduate with honors, some with high honors, and you got all that cum laude and magna cum laude. There's lots of different terms for it. So, just like on a graduation ceremony, all graduate, they walk across the stage, but not all have the same level of honor. So our decisions day by day, and whether they align with God's will or not, and doing the right thing, will affect our future that way, even if we are God's children, and not worrying about eternal judgment. So our choices are important. They really do matter. They matter a a lot, an awful lot.
And we need to be careful with our choices day by day. Yeah, some things are very clear in the Word, very easy to understand. Don't do this, do do that. And then we're responsible for the things that's not specifically laid out in His Word because we are to pray for wisdom and seek wisdom and we are to follow the leading of the Spirit. And, and so there are many decisions we make that we just have to make in faith Exercising the wisdom God gives us. Choices matter. I I suspect that a large part of those 35,000 a day don't matter much. Am I going to have bacon or sausage for breakfast? Really don't matter a whole lot. Just whatever you feel like that day. You don't really have to spend any time saying, Lord, should I eat bacon or sausage this morning? I don't think I'd pray that prayer. He might tell you to eat, you know, Neither one, you know, <laughs> kind of ruin breakfast, right? And those are those are inconsequential decisions, but there's a lot of important decisions. Obviously, from time to time, day to day, month to month, some very momentous decisions in life. We need to learn to walk in the spirit, be spirit led, which simply means we have to yield to Him and. Look for him for wisdom and and pray and ask for direction and trust that he is God enough and sovereign enough that he can handle the timing and he can handle the consequences and he can handle all those things which we can't handle. And therein is the comfort. Therein is the joy of living the Christian life as we should.